Last week we started a uh, two-week series on the question, why church? Why do we do this? Why do we put all the effort in? And, and we spent a whole bunch of time, we had to do some historical stuff to give you a picture of the primary thing that God wants to see us do is to represent him in the world, to bear his authority and to represent him in the world. And so we, we did a whole bunch of work to get there and maybe you left thinking, that's cool, but how do you do that? I'm glad you came back today because that's what we want to add to that layer. We want to talk about what it would take um, to do that. How do we represent him well? And th this uh, series was planned for a little while. I knew what I was going to do. It was all, all um, kind of planned out. And uh, last week, I'm doing prep for this, and I saw something uh, that Andy Stanley did, and I thought, I'm stealing half of that. And I did. So... Part of that is going to be um, some stuff that I've taken from him that just blended in really well with what we were planning on doing. And here's the thing that's a little weird. See, I think it's possible that what I share this morning, the people who are going to find it most helpful are the people who have had the most struggles with church. Maybe you haven't made a decision for Jesus yet because you've looked at what goes on inside the church and you've wondered, Look, look at the way they treat each other. Look at the way they treat other people. Look at the way I don't get this. I kind of like Jesus, but I'm not sure about his people. You, you, might, you might be somebody who's been in church, and you got hurt or wounded, and you've gone away for a while, and you're back, and you're, you're dipping your toe and going, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I think about this. And I think what we're going to talk about today is going to address some of the concerns that you have. And oddly enough, some people who may have the most difficult time with this are the people who were raised inside the church or who've been in it for a long period of time. And there are things that are the way they should be in your mind. And so we're going to tackle all of that and um, we'll see how it goes. I, I can promise you that I don't come into my office during the week and sit down and think, how can I tick some people off this week, right? It's not on my radar. In fact, I would do the opposite all the time. But I told you last week, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give you the right picture of how God operates in our world. And he does that through, through who we are together. And we want to get that picture right. And so we're trying to find a way to recapture that. And if um, feathers get ruffled, Sometimes that just has to happen, um, even though I'm not totally thrilled about it. Uh, wow. Try to take it off my head. I want to start where we left off last week. We stopped in Matthew chapter 16. Peter's asked the question, as whole disciples were, who do people say that I am? Then they, they were asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And then we talked about how in verse 19, he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the heaven. This idea that I'm giving you my authority to represent me in the world, to be passed down. And we talked through all of that. But the one verse I skipped, I skipped on purpose. Because it's loaded. It's loaded with some stuff that we're going to have to unload. And um, we're going to go back and do that today. Peter gets it right. Jesus you're Messiah. You were sent from God. And I know who you are. And Jesus says this to Peter. 
And I tell you that you are Peter, a small stone, a little stone. And on this rock, a large stone, huge stone. So whatever is about to happen is not happening on Peter. It's happening on his statement that your Messiah, this belief that he had, um, Jesus was going to take that and say, I'm going to do something incredible with your understanding that I am the Messiah. And then he says this, and on this rock, I will build my, mm, wrong word. Most of your translations will have a very specific word that's been passed down over and over and over again. The problem is, it's the wrong word. What do you have in your translations? What do you know this to be? Church. Wrong word. Wrong picture, wrong idea, it was the wrong word. Now, what, what can happen when this happens is that sometimes there are just translation errors. Somebody does their best to take some Greek word and then to put it into a way that we would understand it, and sometimes that gets lost. That's not what happened with this one. In fact, it's pretty disturbing how this word ended up changed. The, the real word, if you go back and you look at what Jesus had to say, is he's going to say, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. My ecclesia. This word had been around way before Jesus showed up. It was used after Jesus. And it was a pretty common word and everybody understood it. It's used in um, texts outside of the scriptures as well. 112 times or so, I think I'm in the right range there, this word is used in the New Testament. Three times, its correct translation is used when they didn't have any other choice. They, they couldn't do anything different. They, they used um, the definition. What's this definition? Well, the definition of an ecclesia is a gathering, a meeting, or an assembly that was summoned for a specific purpose. There was a particular reason that we got you together to have this meeting, to have this gathering. And we just learned that one of those particular reasons God has wanted to put us together was to represent him in the world. So we know this is going on. But that's not the word that gets used all the rest of the times. What gets used all the rest of the times is a German word. A German word that means house of the Lord. They got placed in translations at the time that they were putting it into common language. And everybody knew this was not right. But there was fierce, fierce pressure to make sure a German word was used instead. Now listen, I'm fairly confident that Jesus didn't speak in German. Right? I mean, he's God. He could have done that if he wanted to. But you go back and look at all the early manuscripts, it's ecclesia. It's this gathering of people for a specific, specific purpose. It wasn't come to this house of the Lord. Now, if you want to know how that happened, why, why did we end up with this change of translation? It was because there was some stuff going on in our world. There was, a, there was a conflict between two views of how you do things. 
that maybe the best way to get the, the lay of the land is to go back and look at a little bit of history. For thousands of years, before Jesus and after Jesus, there have been very specific ways that people connect with God. If you go and look, the, there will be similar patterns. And it, the old pattern is established. It's been done for so long. And it's, it's, you can pick it out. It has some components to it. Here they are. One, they have rituals and rules that are written down in some text. You can find all the ancient um, kind of religions that are still around today. There's a text that's attached to them. Many of the ones that were operating back then had a text that was attached to it. So there were rules and rituals that somebody had to follow in order to get right with a God. That's, that's one. Two, there were rule givers. There was somebody who was interpreting that text and telling you what rules you had to follow and what rituals you had to do, in what order, and how exactly to do it, so that you could be right with God. Fascinating, the rule givers, always men, happened to be pretty good at keeping all the rules themselves. And they would choose the rules that they could pull off, and they would diminish the ones that they had a harder time with, which created a kind of hypocrisy. And while they were doing that, they were laying rules on people that created a kind of hypocrisy for them. So it's a terrible system, which ended up with the third, the rule keepers. People who were often scared, running around, asking the rule givers, what do I have to do to be right with God? Tell me, what order do I have to do this in? What, what, what am I missing? And out of fear, they're doing everything they can to be right with God. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. Let me write a check, right? Whatever you need, I'll do for you. And then the fourth one, always, they had revered places where they would send them to. You have to go on this journey to this revered place to do this ritual to make you okay. You have to come to this place to do this ritual here in order for you to be right with God right here. Now, um, if, if we went and examined Judaism which is where Christianity was birthed out of, you would find this, this old pattern. We're going to put it right up on the screen. You would find the Torah and the oral law. You're like, Blair, you said it was a written text. Yeah, they wrote down the oral law. Over time, it was told so often, they just wrote it down so they could keep following more rules. They had priests and prophets. In this culture, there were even kings at times who would make decrees about how you would live spiritually. There were rule keepers. There were religious Jews who followed everything you told me to do to the letter of the law. There were groups at Jesus' time that had been told, it doesn't matter how many rituals and rules you keep, you'll never be good with God. There was other groups who looked at all the stuff that they were required to do, and they were exhausted, and they just said, forget it. I'm not going to do that. And then there were temples and synagogues where you would go to these revered places to do your thing. Now, here's, here's what's funny. This is Judaism, but if you went and looked at every other religious activity back then, you'd find the same pattern. Rome had main gods that they would worship, and Zeus was one of them, and there was a place to put his temple. 
and you put this in a very particular place, and there were, there were priests there who would tell you exactly what you had to do, what rituals you had to do. To, to make in order for him to be good with you. And they had this with all kinds of stuff. And these people were running around afraid. I've got to get right with a harvest God. I've got to get right with a sea God. I've got to get right with a commerce God. I've got, I've got to do the right thing so that my life can be good. And I'm going to listen to all these people, rule givers, tell me what to do in all of these revered places so that I can be okay. Now here's, here's what happens. Jesus comes along and he says, this I'm going to reject. In fact, this I'm going to burn to the ground. Every last bit of it. It's all gone. This is not, this is not what I long for for mankind. I have a different way of doing things. And, and when you look at what Jesus started to do, you, you can find it. Instead of rules and rituals, right? If you could put up the next slide, I forgot, thanks. He established a new covenant. It's not that he said, oh, I don't care anymore. In fact, the scriptures record that Jesus says, I care even more deeply. It's not just what you do, but it's now your motives. It's how you think. It's all the internal stuff that didn't count before. Now I'm counting that. But here's the difference. I'm going to forgive you. There's nothing that you can do to earn that. There's no rule or ritual that you can follow to be good enough to be given this forgiveness. I'm just going to give it as a gift. And when I give it to you, out of grace... I am going to make you right with God. This thing that you long for, this thing that you want, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I'm going to fix what you can't fix on your own. Through rules and rituals, I'm going to take care of this. So he gets rid of that. He says, the rule keepers, no prophet, priest, or king's needed. I'm the one who's in place. You go through me to get to the Father. Right? So there's not this order of people who tell you exactly what to do and how to do it so that you can be sure that you're right with God. He's already done that. There's no need for them. He goes on. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a new command. Instead of a plethora of stuff, I'm going to boil it down to a new command and a new ethic that I expect for you. And we're going to talk about that today. And the places that you go, I'm not going to create a place I'm going to create a movement. I'm going to create an ecclesia, a gathering of people for a specific purpose. Their purpose is to represent me in the world. So I'm going to take all of this stuff and I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm going to do something new. And here's the problem. Because it had been going on for thousands and thousands of years... This wasn't going to go away without a fight. And in fact, we can find recorded in the scriptures, as God begins his new thing, these ecclesias that are set up to bear his authority to the world, something happens. Groups of people who, who love Jesus, they're following Jesus. But their concern is 
that you're not doing some of the stuff that the old system has established. And they went to these Roman followers in Galatia. I want to take you to Galatians chapter 5. And they said to them, you're not Jewish enough. We have all of these rules. We have all of these rituals. You're not following any of them. And because of that, we're not sure you can actually be right with God. Paul hears about this. He started this little ecclesia in Galatia. It's a little province in Rome. These are Roman people. These are people who, have, who don't have exposure to the Jewish culture. And now all of a sudden, these people are coming in and saying, you have to be more Jewish. And so Paul writes to them. And in Galatians 5, verse 1, he says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do you see that? I came, Christ says, to free you. Paul's saying this about Christ. Came to free you from all those rules and, and rituals. I came to free you from all those rule givers who were holding stuff over you. I came to free you from this fear that maybe you're not right enough with God. I came to give you freedom to follow after me. Listen, friends. If your following Jesus doesn't feel like freedom to you, you could be doing it wrong. I would say you are. He says this. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Listen. If you allow them to cause you to do this one ritual... It's not going to stop there. You're going to get circumcised. And then they're going to come to you and they're going to say, here's this other thing that we do too. Here's this other thing that we do too. Here's this other thing that we do too. He looks at him and he says, it's a trap. It's a trap. You start down this road and you're in a lot of trouble. It's a lot like, <laughs> it's a lot like the trap that happened after 300 years of ecclesias, these movements of people who were representing God in the world, they conquered Rome. And after they did that, Rome kind of conquered the church. And things started to be far more organized and structured with revered places and rule givers. And by the time you get to the Reformation, you have a group of people who finally started to say, we need to put the scripture into common language for people to read. And when they went to do it, they all knew that ecclesia should have been translated a gathering, more of the idea of a movement that Jesus was starting. And they got tons of pressure from the church to say, you need to make sure that's a German word because we want those people to come to a place where we can tell them what to do and how to do it. And the old system was creating traps all over the place. I don't, um, I don't know if you've ever heard me do this or not, but I've been really aware of this for a long period of time. And people will sometimes ask me, where do you want to meet? And I'll say, let's meet at our building. And they'll say, the church? Yeah, at our building. 
I want, I want to meet in our building. This is a tool, a resource. It's been really good. It's been a huge blessing for us. But this is not a holy place. You are. You were intended to be the place that God's spirit resides in and then carries his message to the world through. You are. And Paul is warning them, you're about to step into a trap. And instead, he suggests a different kind of ethic because he's kind of tackling all these things in there, right? You were, for, you were meant for freedom. It's about rituals and rules. Don't listen to them. You'll end up doing more. You'll be end up in slavery. Don't listen to the rule givers. I've already done this for you. I've made you right. And then he says this. He's about to give a new ethic, something that we can sink our teeth into. In verse 6, it says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That's what they wanted these Roman people to do. We want you to get circumcised. We want you to start there with our ritual. This ritual will make you right with God. He's saying it's of no value. I don't care if you do it. I don't care if you don't do it. I don't care where you're at right now. That's unimportant. It's of no value. What is of value is this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Can, can you just hear the people going, but Paul, what, what about the temple? What about the temple and the synagogue? The only thing that counts. No, no, no. Paul, what, what about all the priests? We've got all these priests set up to help. The only thing that counts what, what, what about the Ten Commandments? We've got those. The only thing that counts. What about our rituals? We have these cleansing things that we have to do. Maybe for you, it's every night I have to say this prayer to make sure that I'm right with God. I've got to have a clean slate so I know for sure I'm okay. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the ethic. That's the command. That's the picture that he wants for this movement. I want you to be a group of people who represent me in the world through love. Radical idea for back then. Could I suggest to you that the people who have the most problem with the church aren't saying, I'm really kind of upset by the way you people love each other. It's just too radical. It's too much. You need to back down. Right? That's, that's not what they're expressing. They're expressing that they see something else happening in our lives. And why? Because the old system doesn't give up. What Paul was trying to help the Galatians understand was that vertically between them and God, they were good. Christ had done the work. He had freed them to live, to live well. And the question he wanted on their mind was how am I supposed to live 
based on love. How, how am I going to express my love the best to the people around me? How am I going to do that to my family? How am I going to do that to my friends? How am I going to do that to that coworker who is a pain in my side? The only thing that counts is love. Oh, my word. I have to love them? Yes. What does love require of you? What does love require of you at home? What does love require of you at work? What does love require? That question should haunt our minds because that's who we are. We're a gathering of people who come together to represent God by the way we love each other. And God wants us focused on that, which seems odd right? Are you sure, Blair? Are you sure we're not supposed to be focused here? This is what we have to be focused on. Um, God says this in a lot of different ways. There's actually a, poem, a moment where Jesus says, you can sum up all the laws on two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That and your neighbor as yourself translated would have been, it's equal to. If you love your neighbor, it's like loving God. I want you focused on this because that's how you love me. And if just in case you're concerned that maybe I'm making stuff up and cherry picking based on Paul's words, I want to take you back to Matthew 13. No, John 13. In John 13, Jesus has just had the Last Supper. He's washed his disciples' feet, giving them a picture of what it means to be great in God's kingdom. You'll be a servant. And then he says this in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? Why do I want you to love one another? Because this is my new ethic. This encompasses it all. You're like, are you sure? Back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is sitting, teaching his disciples. He's giving them a manifesto. A lot of people call it the Beatitudes, where he's on a mount, just downloading some important stuff about his new kingdom. And in verse 23, he says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And at that place, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You're trying to go vertical. You're trying to make sure your things are right with God. And he says, and when you, you're there to do that, and you remember, what do you do? What's the most important thing? Some of you already know. Verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift because to love them is to love me. This has been really hard for the church to accept. We've looked at all the rules and regs, and we've been convinced that we've got to go around and make things right with God, and God's going... I did all the work to make things right with you. I wish you would understand the peace 
that I have between you and me right now so that you could represent me in the world, just in case you're wondering if that's really what he wants from us. Back in John chapter 13, after he tells them to love one another because of this new command, he says this in verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He came to change everything. He came to flip everything on its head. And instead, we wrestle with this. You know why? Because over and over again, the old pattern tries to reinsert itself into the new movement that God made. And we fall for it. You know why? Quite frankly, it's just easier. It's easier for me to know if I'm right between God instead of trusting him by faith. If I do these rules and follow these rituals and have somebody tell me what to do and remove the responsibility for that. If I go to this place every week and I check it off on my box that, I, that I've done that thing that's spiritually required of me and I'm good. It's just easier. But love what love requires of us is hard. It's the hardest thing that you will ever do. Um, some of you have met my wife, Tracy, and you have said to me, she is the sweetest thing. And she is. And she's not. <laughs> right? She actually talked to me after the first service. She goes, you make sure you say it's not all the time. I'm not sure I can say that right now. I'm afraid of you. Right? No, it's not all the time. She is a sweet person, but I'm telling you what, she has her moments where she's a pistol. And I don't want to love her right then. I just want to win. Right? I want to take it to her. And she's somebody I'm deeply committed to. Loving is hard. Blair, no, this can't just simply be about love. Yes, it is. What about sin? You go and look. The sin that God points out in the scriptures is a violation against the people around you. And we've, we've created an art form of it where we can somehow justify it. I don't know if you've heard this one. It was consensual, right? It's consensual. We're both okay with that. But the scriptures talk about leaving marks in other people's lives that harm them. When you go away and you're not there anymore. And they say, why would you do that? You want to do what's best for the other person. And just because they agree to it doesn't mean that that's something that you can do. The calling of love is great. It's demanding. It's hard. It'll be the most difficult thing you ever give yourself to. And this is the movement that God has called us to. Back in Galatians... Back in Galatians, Paul says it this way in verse 7 to this group of people who are being confronted with this decision. What do I do? Do I get circumcised? Do I follow this ritual that they'll tell me makes me more right with God? And he says this, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Which is kind of, that's kind of funny, right? I mean, he's talking about circumcision, and he just used a play on words. Who cut in on you? 
to keep you from obeying the truth. What truth? That all that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And he gives a warning in verse 9. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. You take a little bit in. You take a little of the old system in and think that's what makes you right between me and God. And before long, it will spread to everything and you will follow the rules and you will follow the rituals and you will look for somebody to tell you what to do and how to do it so that you can be right before God and you will live in this sense of fear that you're never sure you're good enough or doing the right things. You'll go to the revered places to to create your places of ritual and you'll get lost in an old system that Jesus wanted to burn to the ground. Because out of his sense of love for you, he wanted you to be free from all of that and know that when I died on the cross for you, I fixed this. And now I want you to step into the world and love like nobody else so that people will know that's, that's how God would be. That's what God would say. That's what God would do because we represent him in this way. We've been thinking about this a lot this summer. Uh, the church in our country, and I would even say at Waypoint, has been struggling to be that kind of movement, to be an ecclesia that has this purpose of representing God through the way we love. And I think part of the reason we have difficulty is because I suspect that many of you are a lot like me. I'm very independent. I like to do stuff on my own. I can't stand asking for help. I'm terrible at it. And I, I just like to go it alone. Except the scriptures talk about this gathering, this assembly, being like a body, being like a team that does stuff together. And if we want to step into this role of loving, of asking ourselves, what does love require of me? You're going to be doing some of the most difficult soul searching you'll ever do in your life. And chances are, you won't do that well on your own. And so we've been wondering, what do we do? Because we're... We have whole groups of people who are here but are not stepping into this picture that God has for us. And so uh, we came up with an idea. Uh, we, we took it from Paul. Paul said, um, you're in a race and somebody cut in on you. And we've realized uh, if there are people when they go out to run a marathon, one of the smartest things that they do is they find a running partner. They, they go to somebody who can hold them accountable to show up on the days when they need to run, who kind of tracks the stuff that they're doing with them, who knows what they're eating and asks questions about all the important stuff so that when they actually go and they run that race, they can finish. Here's the truth. You're already in a race. You're already in a race that represents God in this world. And the way you run it matters. And so we thought, what would it look like if people started taking on running partners, spiritual running partners for life? 
where um, somebody came alongside you who could support you, talk to you about your goals, walk with you along the way, ask you hard questions like, what does it take for you to love this person that you're having trouble with? On your tables, there's a piece of paper. And uh, we've come up with this idea. It's really flexible how we can go about doing it. But, but we want you to consider finding a running partner for life. Not just somebody who asks, how's, how's it going at work or what's going on with your family? That's good. We want them to catch up with you like that. But to get to the bottom line and say spiritually, seriously, what's going on in your life? What's, what's happening there? What does love require of you in these relationships that you have, in this role that you have at work? What does love require of you? And you're having genuine conversations about that with somebody who's willing to run alongside you the same journey. So here, we've given you a couple different ways to go about it. There's one box at the top that says, I'll find that person on my own. I'll find a running partner that I'm going to do that. I'm personally, me, I'm going to find a running partner because I, I need it. And, and so for you, you might say, I'm going to find my own running partner and then write your name down and we'll just check in with you. We'll say, how's it going? Do you need any help? Um, below there, there's two boxes. You can say, I want you to help me find a running partner. I'm new to Waypoint. I'm new to Christianity, maybe. I'd like for you to help me find a partner. And if you want it to be somebody who's similar to you, peer-to-peer, -peer, tell us what that means, what life stage you're in, what age you are. If that doesn't matter to you, if you want an experienced runner, somebody who's been around with Jesus for a long time, they've been running the race, um, say, I I'd love to be partnered with somebody who can support me and have those questions. And all we're looking for is once a month, you sit down face-to-face -face with somebody and you have a question. How, how are you doing with God? And you digest this kind of stuff. At the bottom of that page, there's also a box that says, I'm willing to be somebody else's running partner. I might not get anything out of it, but I'm going to show up to support them. I'll ask them good questions. I'll be a support. I'm an experienced runner who'd love to be able to do that. And if you could fill that out so we could know you're available. Here's what we're dreaming of. What would it look like if this ecclesia took that seriously, that we would become a movement of people who decided to represent God by the way we loved each other and others who touch our lives? It'd still be radical. And because it's not easy, it may be that it's time for you to get some support. As you listen to this song, I hope you'll consider joining us. If you decide to do that, fill that out, drop it in the offering box, and we'll go from there.